I have never been involved in the construction of a new home, but I've always appreciated or been intrigued by the advice that Larry Burkett used to repeat a lot about building a new house. He used to say that no couple should build a home together unless they have been married at least 10 years. And the reason, he always explained his reasoning behind this, he said uh, that house construction is so stressful that you need a decade's worth of experience in compromise and forgiveness before you undertake that task. Uh, If you're working with a contractor, I understand that it takes a great deal of vigilance to build a house. My cousin, uh, Kathy's cousin, actually built a house several years ago in uh, his home in Ontario, Canada, and every day he went to the job site with a box of donuts from Tim Hortons and a can of orange spray paint. Uh, The donuts were for the workers and the spray paint were for reminders that he could write all over the wall, socket here, nod here, lights, and he would put all kinds of reminders he, he tells us that his house was partially built by Tim Horton. Uh, we've done a fair bit of remodeling over the years at the Parsonage, and my experience teaches me that remodeling involves a lot of mess. I've done a fair share of mess making in my life, sanding, removing carpeting, scraping wallpaper, and our house, as old as it is, always produces a wonderful host of discoveries. Rotten wood, old plumbing, plastered over chimneys, covered stairwells, animal bones. Uh, The best insulation that we have found thus far in the house, removing walls, is a humongous nest that we found in the walls. There had to be an entire bale of straw there in the walls that had been carried in to provide a home for some wonderful little critter. I know, and you know, if you've ever torn into your house, starting any project means dust, dirt, debris, and debris. Some of you are involved in the building trades, and I'd like to know from you sometime if it ever feels like you spend 70% of your time cleaning and 30% of your time actually constructing something. But, but the wonder of, of home remodeling or construction is that usually, not always, but usually most of the mess is forgotten when the work is done. It, it might not be completely forgotten, but at least it slips back into memory a little bit when you experience the satisfaction and peace of a finished project. When, when we first uh, moved into the parsonage, one of our first completed projects was the stairwell. <laughs> Uh, It was uh, completely sanded, completely spackled, completely painted. uh, And the day that the carpet was installed, Kathy and I sat in the nirvana of the stairwell and looked at our four as square as they're going to be walls, the beautiful ceiling that was painted so nicely, the fresh carpet and the, the paint. It was a beautiful, glorious experience. Uh, Ten years have passed, three children have come, so the walls don't look that good anymore. But I still remember sitting there happily in that glory of the finished room, or stairwell. I want to suggest to you that this combination of mess and glory that you who are homeowners are familiar with is one way that the Apostle Paul wants you to think about the church. You should have these images in your mind when you think about the church. Mess and glory. 
Now, if you've been around the church for too long and in the wrong situations, uh, you might only think in terms of mess and not much in terms of glory. Have you ever been involved in uh, uncomfortable conflicts or difficult situations or painful disagreements? How is it that you can have friends uh, with, with men and women and you, you love the same Lord and you celebrate the same gospel and yet over what, especially in the perspective of, of time, it, it is, is sometimes just momentary issues. Those friendships are just shredded. Uh, while preparing for today, while I was thinking about what I was, was going to say today, I, I was reminded of myself and some of the things that I have done and I am responsible for bruising spirits and, and setting people adrift. Mess. There's mess. If you put mess and, and glory in the church uh, together, most people, I think, will think about mess more than glory. But I want to spend a few minutes today unfolding a passage of Scripture for you where, to, see, to show you where they come together, both mess and glory. Uh, One of my goals today is I want you to understand how both are at work in the book of Ephesians and how they are both at work in our church uh, as well. To that end, I want you to take your Bibles, if you would please, and turn with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 is where I'd like to direct your attention. It's a passage that we read a few minutes ago, uh, and uh, we're, we're very familiar with these paragraphs. Over the last three weeks, we have been looking at this section of Scripture uh, from verses 11 through 22, which talk about the corporate nature of our salvation. In Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10, Paul focuses on our individual lives. We individually have trusted in Christ and our followers of Christ. And now in verses 11 through 22, there is this discussion of our corporateness, our, our nature together as a body, as a community. And when you put two human beings together in any outfit, conflict is inevitable. Now, the specific context here in these verses that we've uh, talked about is the tension in the church between Jews and Gentiles, this ethnic tension, which is a concept that is somewhat foreign to us. Um, We don't think about that as being a threat to our unity in our church, the difference between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. But Paul writes about these in Ephesians 2 for the church in Ephesus and so that we can see how through the cross, these disparate peoples are brought together as one. And, and we learn how they should relate to one another. Last Sunday, uh, Steve Wilson said it so well, I think. His, his, one of his favorite things he said, he said, I have received more grace from God through Jesus Christ than I will ever be called upon to extend to you. It's a great reminder. That's something that is so true in our relationships with one another. We have received immeasurable grace from God. Uh, uh, Forgiving you is is easy in comparison to the forgiveness I have received from God. Uh, We've already read together this passage this morning, and our focus this morning is going to be on verses 19 through 22, where Paul talks about the consequences or the result of the unifying work that's been done by Christ and through Christ. And I want you to see three elements in the text. Uh, I've already mentioned two of them. We're going to talk today about glory, and we're going to talk about mess. But before we do that, I want to talk about an image that is pervasive all the way through, not only these verses, but actually the book of Ephesians. Uh, The image helps us understand the glory, and the glory motivates us to work through the mess. 
and the mass is what produces the glory. So all these things are interrelated. Let's begin here. Uh, First, this pervasive image. A pervasive image. You may be familiar with this. Paul would have us think together about the church as a house. The church is like a house. Uh, The Greek word for house is the word oikos. And uh, there are oikos-related words all the way through this passage. Verse 19 has the word household in it. Verse 20 uses an oikos word translated built. Verse 21 has the word building in it. Verse 22 says we're being built together. Verse 22 uses also the word dwelling. There's oikos, house words, all the way through this passage. You're likely familiar with this comparison. The Bible uses it a lot. The church is like a house. It's, it's related to the image of the church as a family. God is the Father. Jesus is the heir, reigning as master over the house. And the Holy Spirit dwells in the house. Now, let me show you some of the ways, though, that this image is unpacked in, in this verse. Um, uh, ver- in this passage, rather. Verse 20, Paul writes about the structure of the house. You notice that? He talks, first of all, about the foundation. The church has been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. They are the foundation of the church. In the New Testament, the word apostle emphasizes the authority of an office. The apostles were men that were commissioned by Jesus to plant churches and to deliver the divinely inspired books that were to be the authoritative material for the life of the church. The Bible came to us, the New Testament, through apostles. Uh, The apostles deliver house rules for this house. Uh, Every family has house rules. You have rules for your home that, that distinguish your house from other homes. Did you ever try to pull this trick on your parents? You say to them, they lay down some edict, and you say to them, but Billy's parents don't make him do that. What does your dad say? He says, hoorah for Billy's parents. We're not Billy's parents. You don't live in Billy's home. This is our house, and the rules are different in our house than in Billy's house. Uh, One of my favorite stories about the the Bush family involved uh, the President uh, George, uh, number 43. He was visiting his parents' house when he was in office. And he got up early in the morning. It was 6 o'clock, and he went downstairs in the living room. He got himself a cup of coffee, and he sat down on the couch, and he put his feet up on the coffee table. And his mother, Barbara Bush, and his father, uh, former President Bush, came down and immediately, uh, Barbara Bush, the former first lady, saw her son with, her feet, with his feet on her coffee table, and he said, George, put your feet down. And, and uh, former President Bush said, Barbara, he's the President of the United States. And she said, I don't care. I don't want his feet on my coffee table. <laughs> there are house rules that must be followed. Uh, and, and actually, the rest of the book of Ephesians unfolds these house rules for us. How do we function as followers of Christ together? In particular, when we turn to chapters 4 through 6, we'll see Paul unfold these. This is how we and our family function together. Uh, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. These are New Testament prophets, not Old Testament prophets. New Testament prophets who are men and women who delivered messages from God to the church 
uh, that I think filled the gap between the time that Christ ascended into heaven and the New Testament books were collected and completed together. Paul's going to talk about apostles and prophets, and we will talk about them again uh, later as we get into chapter 3. The foundation, verse 20 tells us, is the apostles and prophets. The cornerstone is Jesus Christ. Um, Today, cornerstones are largely ceremonial. They they don't play the crucial role that they did uh, during this era. Uh, But during this era, the cornerstone was the standard by which the building was built. Everything, the cornerstone was placed first and everything was lined up according to the cornerstone. Everything was measured and standardized and had to match the cornerstone. Our goal in our church uh, is, as, as we build, to focus on the cornerstone who is Jesus Christ and align everything that we do with who He is and what He did. That's our goal because He's the cornerstone. Now, verse 21 tells us that the church here is not just a house, it's a special house, it's a temple house. Look at verse 21. It says, In Him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. This is a theme that we're going to unpack in the coming weeks. The church is the new temple. It's, it's uh, a theme, actually, as we think about the church as a temple, in which we see continuity and discontinuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, We tend to think of temples as sacred space. When you go into a temple, it's a very sacred, holy place. But in many ways, in the minds of thinking in the Bible, a temple is, is a house, simply a house, but it's a house where God lives. This is how Jews and Greeks thought about temples, both of them. A temple is God's house. And the Greeks would put a statue of their God in the house so that when you went to visit him, there he was, there she was. You could see him or her in their house. Uh, If you were to approach any little girl or little boy in Jerusalem and you were to say to them, where does God live? They could tell you. Uh, They'd give you directions in Jerusalem. God lives two blocks that way, three blocks this way. It's the biggest house in town. You can't miss it. And God has in His house all the furniture that they have in their house. And they could read about in the book of Exodus how the furniture was built. God has tables. God has lamps. Um, God has washing lavers. God, you can even see the, the smoking fire from God's house. Uh, you, you, the cooking fire. You can see. You know God's home because His fire is always burning. There's always cooking going on at God's house. Uh, The church is a house. It's God's house. And according to verse 22, God does dwell here by His Spirit. Now that's the image. That's the pervasive image that moves through this passage. And it helps us understand the glory that is inherent here. We talked about image. Now we're going to talk secondly about glory. The church is a dwelling place in which God lives. This is an astounding truth. And it's going to be unfolded further as as we go through this this book. Look at chapter 3, verse 16. Uh, Just one page over, uh, maybe, or on the same page. Chapter 3, verse 16, Paul says, I pray that out of His glorious riches He may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being, here we go again, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. God lives here. 
Uh, do you realize what happens as, as we gather together? We are corporately the dwelling place of God. Our meetings are holy meetings. We, we together are the place where God lives. Church doesn't seem that way sometimes, does it, though? <laughs> I read this week of a little boy who went to church with his mother. And he'd been taught that the church is God's house. We're going to God's house. And one day he said to her, Mom, if this is God's house, why is he never at home? One of our challenges is that we're so used to thinking about uh, the church that, 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 that as, as God's house, the familiarity stifles the wonder of it. God has, has brought us near to himself and he is near us. We are his dwelling, us as a people. Uh, this is the season that we're going to celebrate the wonder of the Incarnation. right? We're going to celebrate in the weeks to come the marvel that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, that God has come near. He is Emmanuel. He is literally God with us. And He walked the earth for 33 years among us. And sometime over this month, I imagine, if you have a moment, you will take a moment and you will try to think about that scene and that very familiar story again. And you'll imagine yourself, what was it like as a shepherd? You'll put yourself in that scene to be there and to look into the heavens and hear the angels and what that must have been like, filled with dread and then receiving the good news and then going and worshiping that baby. Who wraps a baby in swaddling cloths and puts them in a manger? I mean, who does that to a baby? But it's God's son, the baby. And, and you'll think about those, those magi that have come from the east and you'll imagine what it's like with them to bow and worship this toddler, these wise men on their knees in front of a toddler. It's, it's astounding. You'll, you'll try again to cultivate the wonder and the joy and the glory as you think about this story. In Luke chapter 1, when, when the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary, he, he explained to her that she was going to bear the Christ. And, and he, he told her this. He said, The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. The word overshadow is very significant. That, that word overshadow is the same word used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to describe what it was like when the Holy Spirit came and dwelt in the temple. Solomon built this beautiful temple. Uh, the, the Bible describes it in great detail, this, this house for God. And he dedicated it on the dedication day. God's glory visibly came down and dwelt in that temple. It overshadowed the temple. And, and, and the angel Gabriel said to Mary, the Holy Spirit's going to come and overshadow you. Can, can I say this without being crass? It's as if the angel is telling Mary, your womb, Mary, is going to become a holy of holies and God is going to dwell in you. That's, that's wonder. That, that's glory. And Paul takes that same imagery and he applies it to the church. We're going to sing again this month, Glory to God in the highest because Christ has come to dwell, to dwell among us. But whenever we gather, we celebrate His presence, that He's with us, that He's dwelling with us. That is, is glory. I, I believe it because the Bible teaches that, but do you ever have a hard time seeing or sensing that glory in the church? 
is he is he really is it really glorious when you try to scramble somebody to fill the nursery because someone's homesick? Do, do you feel the glory in those moments? Or uh, uh, when the slides have misspelled words, or we miss our musical entrance, or the sermon is boring, or the bulletin has a typo? It doesn't feel real glorious when those things happen, does does it? This is why we need to talk about the mess. We talked about the image, we talked about glory, now we're going to talk about the mess. And I want to focus for a moment on one word in verse 21. It says, in him the whole building is joined together. I guess two words here, one in the original, joined together. This is a word that as far as we can tell, Paul coined. Paul created words all the time. Paul took, uh, to make this word, Paul took a very rare word for building and he put the with prefix in the beginning of it. Paul did that a lot. He took a lot of verbs and he put with together because we're a community. Uh, and, and this building with or being built with or joined together is this word that Paul, Paul coined. And this word that he used originally is, is a word that was used to describe the work of a craftsman in fitting stones of a building together. Uh, this is, is not as much of a challenge as it was today, uh, as, uh, today as it was in Paul's day. Uh, I've known people who are masons. Masonry work is, is hard work. I understand that. Uh, but uh, there are two elements that make it easier today than it was in Paul's day. Today, uh, we have uh, mortar between the bricks and we have even stones. The stones come measured, they're manufactured, they're a certain length, certain width, certain height, and, and you build your building with these even stones. And, and where there's uh, maybe minor fluctuations in, in the stones, the bricks... You use mortar to smooth out the imperfections. That was not the sort of construction that Paul is describing here. Paul is writing about craftsmen who built buildings with stones they could find that were quasi-rectangular and without mortar. They set each stone next to each other so that they would fit together perfectly. And can you imagine what was involved in that, how carefully you would have to shape and chip and shave and cut those stones so that they would fit together and interlock with one another to build a stable building? This is what God does. This is what God does with you. This is what God does in you, in your life, through you, in our church. Welcome to the mess. We're a community of men and women. We're being shaped and shaved and cut and chipped in order to be fit together. And that process involves pain and discomfort and conflict. There's a sense here in which every person here should feel that in your life. You feel the impact of the Master's tools in your life as God is fitting us together. The only way to avoid that pain and this that discomfort is, is to so isolate yourself that you never have any significant impact on anyone else or you never receive anyone's genuine ministry into your life. There are ways in which you are being asked to uh, sacrifice, to serve, to bend, to twist, to accommodate the needs and desires of others. It's a constant element in our church and, and it's messy. How are you experiencing the mess right now? 
I, I frequently pray for, our, for people in our church when I think about their ministries. I, I pray for joy for them. Uh, this is Peter's concern for the elders. That they would serve, not because they have to, but because they must. So I pray on Thursday nights when they go home, uh, after our meetings that go late into the night, I pray that they would serve, that they would go home filled with joy at the opportunity to serve, to be chipped and cut and shaped. I pray that for our Awana leaders. When we pray on Wednesday nights with, with the girls to put them to bed, we pray that our Awana leaders would go home Wednesday night happy to have been there. Tired, but happy to have been there. And I pray for you that when you put your money in the offering, you would do so with gratitude and with joy. All those situations are situations that are messy, potentially messy. You have to ask yourself, as you feel this pressure uh, incumbent in being in community with others, how do you endure this mess? How do you survive this? Where does the strength come from to keep going forward when you feel the pain and the pinch of this joining together process? A couple of weeks ago, our small group leaders met together. We were talking about leading our small groups effectively, and we spent some time in Colossians chapter 1. Turn over with me, if you would, to Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. And I want to show you a verse that I think tells us how the Apostle Paul dealt with the mess as he uh, uh, was working toward the glory. Colossians 1, verse 24, he says this, Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, which is the church. I, I confess, I find that a stunning verse in the Bible. I rejoice in what was suffered for you. Who says that? It's not as if Paul's thinking in terms of small inconveniences here. Is he, I mean, we read in 2 Corinthians 12 and in other places uh, about the suffering, the mess that Paul endured. He, he was in prison as he writes this passage. He, he was stoned. He was flogged. He went hungry. He went out without sleep and shelter. He was shipwrecked and he was arrested. This, this, that list would not make me right. I rejoice in what was suffered for you. Uh, Tuesday morning, my alarm went off at 5 o'clock. It often does. Actually, it went off at 4.58, so I could listen to the 5 o'clock news on the radio. So the alarm went off, and I got ready uh, uh, for the day, came up to church, and started working. I was preparing for today, writing my sermon. I did my study last week, wrote my sermon, spent all morning doing that, made a few phone calls, and about lunchtime, I left and went to Lancaster Bible College. I was going to get ready to teach a class, and I... um, all afternoon, I had appointments with students. They're quoting scripture to me. One of the requirements in my class is you have to memorize scripture, a lot of it. And every single one of them has to make an appointment with me to quote these verses to me. They think they're coming to fulfill assignment. They're actually coming so I can talk to them about what they're doing with their education, where they're going, and I try to encourage them in their schooling. It's great. I love it. Uh, in between the times when uh, they were there quoting, I was writing notes for the church and, and answering some emails and organizing a few things. Then at 3.40, I started class. I lectured about the inspiration of the Bible. What a thrill to talk to people about God's Word. 
So I talk to these students about inspiration and what it means and, and, and what, what it says about the Bible. Uh, and I left at 5.10. Actually, had, after class, I had another appointment to listen to somebody else quote scripture. And, and I came home. And on my way home, uh, my wife called and she said, the doctor says I have to go to the hospital. I'm going to go to the emergency room. All right. So I got home and uh, fed the, my wife, my wife cooked us dinner before she went to the emergency room. So uh, I fed children, the children, we ate dinner. My, uh, she went and picked up my mother. They went to the emergency room, and I stayed home with the kids. I uh, cleaned up the kitchen, got them ready for bed. Uh, and because uh, this week is Thanksgiving, we all get together. The house wasn't perfect yet. So my wife's preference was, instead of me going to the hospital to stay with her, that I stay home and clean the house. So I put the kids to bed... I vacuumed the floors, I cleaned two bathrooms, I dusted, I blew up air mattresses, I did all this work, and about midnight I went to bed. So my 19-hour day was over. You have days like that too. There are some people in here who have long, long days. It's not that often in my life. I was asleep, 12 o'clock. 1.15, Claire comes in to my bedroom and I was sleeping soundly. She said, Daddy, I don't feel well, my stomach hurts. Well, I was very asleep. The only thought that I had at that moment in time was, I hope she's having a hypochondriac moment. I don't know what I said. I couldn't think of anything coherent to say, but apparently I spoke with enough authority that she left. Went back to her bed. Two hours later at 3.15, she came in to tell me that she was not being a hypochondriac and there was evidence of it in the vomit in our, kitchen, in our bathroom. So I got, you can't ignore this, right? And I was a little more awake. So I got up and I went to the bathroom and I remembered only too late the uh, uh, rule that whenever your children tell you there's a mess in a room, look carefully before you step, especially if you have bare feet. So I walked into the bathroom, surveyed the damage, went downstairs, got rags, cleaned up the bathroom, got Claire ready, uh, helped her brush her teeth, you know. So uh, I helped her get ready got her basin, got her back into bed, and I was taking those dirty rags downstairs. Uh, and less than 24 hours before that moment, I had written a sermon about rejoicing and suffering. Trust me, at that moment, that was not my thought. I was not thinking I rejoiced in my suffering. I was thinking to myself, somebody bring me a Big Mac because I deserve a break today. How does Paul say this? I rejoice in my sufferings. When I suffer because I have to serve other people, I, I, I get filled with self-pity. Woe is me. Or resentment. If you weren't so needy, I wouldn't have to be doing this for you. Or pride. Look at me. Aren't I impressive? All this suffering I'm doing. Sometimes all three of those streams flow through my mind at once. This pity, self-pity, pride, resentment. How in the world, Paul, how in the world do you say, I rejoice in what was suffered for you? How do you say that? Well, I think the answer to the question is uh, that, that Paul knew uh, two things. No, number one, he knows that suffering for people is the only way to really help them change. He knows that. And more importantly, he knows about the suffering of the cornerstone. The only way to truly change people 
is to suffer for them. If you are really going to have any sort of significant impact on another person, you must suffer. It is a requirement. You cannot help someone else. You cannot show genuine love to someone else without suffering on their behalf. Uh, Think for a moment about parenting. You know this. In any parent-child relationship, someone is always going to suffer. It will either be you as a parent or it will be your child. Either you will suffer in raising this child to maturity because you have given up your time and your energy or your sleep or your hobbies or your social life, your career, in order to bring that son or daughter to maturity. Either you will suffer or they will suffer the consequences of parental neglect and will enter adulthood not ready for life. Somebody's going to suffer in that parent-child relationship. It will either be you or it will be them. And someone's going to suffer always if you try to love them truly and sincerely. True love, true transforming love, finds joy in the joy of someone else. Have you ever said to your, your sweetheart, have you ever said to someone, I'm happy when you're happy? Paul's writing that here, isn't he? He's, he's saying that. I'm happy even though I've been suffering, because you are happy in Christ. I'm satisfied because you have been finding fulfillment and joy in Jesus Christ. So I ask you again this morning, as part of our church, can you feel the impact of the Master's tools in your life as He is joining us together? As He is chiseling away at your soul? Paul's rejoicing is not just in line with how people really change. It's also in line, though, with the cornerstone, Jesus Christ Himself. Remember, He's our standard. He's the thing by which we measure everything. Consider again this morning the suffering that was necessary uh, by Him in order to form us into the church. We were under the sentence of death from God. We were objects naturally, Ephesians 2 tells us, of God's wrath because of our rebellion against our Creator. And we could, uh, we were uh, rightly headed for eternal suffering. But Jesus Christ Himself came and suffered for us. He bore the wrath of God on our behalf. He paid the penalty of sin that we owed. He bore that burden. He suffered for us so we would not suffer God's wrath. And everybody who has turned to Him, uh, trusting in what He has done on the cross, has been given new life and forgiveness. And His life, now you being incorporated into His body, you're lining up with the cornerstone. That's the way we operate because it is what Jesus Christ has done for us. The rest of the book of Ephesians is going to detail how this messiness works out in your life, ways in which you'll see this mess, ways in which you'll rejoice in this glory. Your calling, beloved, is to embrace the messiness and to delight in the glory. Let's pray, shall we? Father, it is with great joy that I stand here uh, before these men and women uh, in whom you are uh, at work in the midst of mess, uh, our mess that we we bring. uh, You are 
shaping and fashioning and cutting and chiseling, uh, shaving. You are building us and it is glorious. Father, I ask today that you would um, uh, fill our minds and our hearts with the uh, the, the joy of this glory of Christ dwelling in us, God making us his home. Uh, set us in awe because of this glory. And in light of the glory, would you send us forth into the mess, we pray, Father. We recognize that Jesus Christ has borne our suffering, so send us as suffering, uh, glad people serving one another truly and being built together for your son's sake. Do that work in us, we pray today in Christ's name. Amen.